Turn to Mark chapter 2. Thank you, Mr. Roosevelt, for leading us in that great singing. It's great. No longer gripped by guilt and fear, controlled by grace. I think it has something to do with what we're looking at today. If you'll turn to chapter 2, verse 1, you may recall in our study that we've had Jesus introduced to us. He is the one who comes to us in the kingdom of God. He is the king himself. He comes uh, to teach us. And primarily we saw in Mark, Jesus is presented as a great teacher, the rabbi. He comes also to heal us. Now, when we come to chapter 2 and for several segments here, where we're dealing with all of them today. And by the way, next week we have a special treat. Those of you who were here last year when Gordon McDonald came and spoke to us, uh, we'll especially look forward to uh, next Thursday morning. Gordon will be here again. We'll look forward to hearing from him. But uh, let's look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And what we have here are five narratives from chapter 2, verse 1 all the way through 3.6. And these narratives have a common element, the element of controversy. So it's not too long after Jesus begins his teaching and healing, very gracious ministry, that he runs into all kinds of crud. And same thing with you. You think you've been doing something really nice and really right and really just, and you find out that a good number of people don't appreciate it one bit. And that's exactly what Jesus found out. And it's an amazing thing when you see how gracious he is uh, that this would be the case. But we're going to find out it certainly is in these five segments. We've lumped them together and we'll deal with them sort of as four basic things we want to learn today. But this first one uh, is verses 1 through 12. Let's read this, this famous story of his healing a paralytic as he was let down through the roof of Peter's home. Well, we think it was Peter's home. It was certainly in Capernaum. Let's look at it together. 2-1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, They made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. (laughs) Amen. Well, let's look at it. What we're studying here is that Jesus' forgiveness flows from his grace. Or we could say, uh, Jesus' grace begins with forgiveness. Jesus' forgiveness flows from his grace. And that is one of the main messages we're going to get in this wonderful story in these 12 verses. Because... Uh, you have Jesus beginning with teaching the word. We saw last time that word and deed go together in the Christian ministry. They go together in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you must proclaim the gospel in what you say. It must be verbally evident, not just from your perspective and worldview, but in those moments when God opens the door, even to share the gospel itself. And at the same time, there must be a demonstration of that gospel by the way that you live. And that demonstration not only brings credibility to the gospel, that demonstration of your life raises the question in the first place, what is it you have I don't have, I'd like to have it. And unless your life is demonstrating it, there's no question at all. No one is concerned at all or has any curiosity at all about your life or about what you believe in. But when your life stands out, it arouses curiosity 
in the midst of those around you. So we must proclaim and demonstrate. But we also saw, didn't we, that you can't help but understand that the proclamation is the cutting edge of what's going on. In that sense, it's prior. Now, if you go to one of the many nations in the world where people make less than a dollar a day, the first thing you do will not be to get up on a little podium and preach the gospel. You'll begin to commit yourself to some people, to live among them, learn of them, listen to them, and serve them. And then as you go along in life, you'll find those opportunities to witness because their temporary needs, their temporal needs are so vast and so urgent that any loving person would address themselves to that first. But that still would not mean that you'd be saying that their eternal life is less important than their temporary life. You have an ultimate agenda because you want to be sure they get home safely and enjoy the wealth of heaven itself forever and ever and ever. And you see the same thing here. Jesus goes among the people who have all sorts of diseases and problems and dysfunctions. And he preaches the word to them. He teaches them. Same thing we're doing this morning. He studies the word with them. Because that is ultimately what brings healing in the next life for sure. And it brings healing of a sort in this life as well. When, when one begins to get his life organized around the Word of God, then healing begins to take place no matter what your circumstances in this life. And that's where we find Jesus uh, in these first verses. That he was uh, teaching, the word, he preached the Word of God to them in verse 2. Now notice, uh, first of all, in these first four verses, that graciously... Jesus sends us helpers, and we need it. Uh, Jesus comes to us by way of helpers, and this is exactly what happens here. The man was lame. He couldn't walk. He, he couldn't crawl through the crowd, even if he wanted to. The crowd was so vast because the word was getting out. Remember, Jesus had to go normally out into the countryside. Whenever he came into a village or to a town like Capernaum, he was swarmed. No way that the most diseased people of all could ever even get to him. But this man had friends. And more importantly, they were friends of Jesus because they believed that Jesus could heal him. And we all need friends who believe that Jesus can heal us. When you get in your worst moments, sometimes you think, you think it's so bad Jesus couldn't even heal you. And you know what you need? You need friends who know that what you need is a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you are even here this morning because friends believe that Jesus can help them and help you. And all of us, probably, who are walking with Jesus Christ, or at least attempting to do so by His grace, we do so because we had friends who believed that what we needed in life more than anything else was an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Jesus sends us friends. Do not despise them. Realize that in many ways, even if unintentionally, they're God's messengers. They're angels. That's what the word angel means, is messenger. And Jesus is so gracious to us to give us friends when we didn't even know ourselves to be looking out for our own best welfare, our own interest. And these guys, they bring this lame man. They know that Jesus can heal him. They come and they see this crowd. There's not even room for people to stand outside. They're all packed in the house, and they, you can't even get close enough to the house hardly to hear him. So what do they do? They figure out a way to go around back, go up on top of the roof, and start pulling roof tiles off. I'm sure Peter's mother was a little disturbed over this. Her house was getting swamped, and people were tearing the roof up. <clears throat> but I tell you what, if you've got to get close to Jesus, you just do what you have to do. And Peter's mother had to understand that. After all, he had healed her in the previous chapter. So these guys were taking roof tiles off, and these are pretty big tiles, but still you've got to take a few of those things off to lower this man down right in the middle of Jesus' sermon. I mean, how would that be? You know, I'm preaching on Sunday morning all of a sudden, and here it comes. Now, in my case, it would be really bad news because there's not a whole lot I can do about it. But in Jesus' case, here comes one of his patients. Right? <laughs> it must have been quite a scene. You know, people are doing anything they can to get their friends to Jesus Christ. How about you? Do you believe in the power of Jesus Christ to help your friends sufficiently that you do anything legal and ethical and mildly socially acceptable to be sure that they get close to Jesus Christ? These guys believed. They knew that Jesus would help him. Jesus sent those helpers in the first place. He's gracious. Then secondly, notice in verse 2-5, the real stunning turn to this story. It says that Jesus saw their faith. Isn't that an interesting way to describe faith? He didn't hear their faith. They didn't say, oh, Jesus, we really believe in you. Heal this man. They saw it by what they were doing. 
I wonder if sometimes if Jesus can see our faith, not by looking into our hearts, but looking at our actions. I wonder if he sees it. Well, of course he sees either faith or lack of faith. And in this case, the very action that these guys were performing was a visible demonstration of believing in the power of Jesus Christ to heal. He saw their faith. And look what he said to the paralytic. Son, you are now healed. Nope. That's what Jesus' friends thought he was going to say. And that's not what he said at all. This is an amazing turn in the story. In fact, this is the point of the story. They all expected Jesus, the healer, just to say, rise, take up your mat, and go home. That's what they expected. He didn't say that at all. He didn't address the man's physical need at all. didn't address his lameness. He looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. The guy said, I didn't come to church. I was coming to the hospital. I want to be healed. And so, but Jesus notices his deepest disease. And gentlemen, he does with you too. And, you know, if we were to poll ourselves this morning about our biggest problems, we would come up all kinds of things. You know, I'm having a hard time with my wife. My girlfriend broke up with me. Those, or for those of you who don't have a wife, by the way. Um, my, <laughs> you know, sometimes if you take the preacher's words out of context, he sounds really, really bad. Uh, you know, my business is not going well. Somebody told me, you know, this and the other about my job performance. Right? You can, you know, a flunk chemistry or whatever. Uh, we can come up with all kinds of things. Jesus looks right through all those things that are going to pass away here in just almost no time and be insignificant. He looks right through all those time-bound things and he sees your real problem. But you're burdened. You're burdened with a load of care. And you're gripped by guilt and fear. Guilt in this life, as the hymn just said, guilt in this life and fear in the next. And he sees your deepest needs. And that's exactly what he goes for. And of course, that's the reason that the teaching ministry is prior. Because it addresses the deepest and longest term needs. And that's exactly where Jesus goes with this man. He's not ignoring his physical needs. He cares intimately about this man, obviously, as we, as we know. But he goes to the deepest needs first. He says, your sins are forgiven. And that's the reason that we say this morning that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ really begins with forgiveness. And this forgiveness flows from his grace. And he gives us helpers for this accomplishment. And then when we come near him, he is going to address this need. Now, the reason a lot of people run from Jesus is because they can pretty well sniff out what he's up to. And that this is going to be a discussion about the need of their forgiveness for their sins. And they just don't want to discuss it. And that's part of the disease, is that you don't want to discuss it. It's embarrassing to you. It's shameful to you. It makes you know, creates low self-esteem, all that. So you want to get away from anybody who's going to talk about it. You just don't want to discuss it. And so you flee because you, you can kind of sniff out. That's what Jesus is up to. Well, I'm telling you, your sniffer is working. Yeah, this is what he's up to. Not to condemn you, not to shame you, not to make you feel bad about yourself, but to give you the best news you could ever hear in the universe. And that is, it doesn't matter. It's gone. Through my ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are gone. They're canceled. That's the good news. And now you can come out into the light. And you can share with your brothers and you can confess your sins and you can receive absolution and you can continue on and on and on because there is an ultimate payment that has been made to cancel the debt. God doesn't just cancel the debt and there's no justice. No, he cancels the debt by making a fair payment. And your sins deserve a fair payment. It's called death. And that payment was made through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is just and does not require payment twice. It's already been paid. And once you open your eyes to this and see that this is you know, God's own reputation for his justice is hinging on this. You have to be forgiven or he is unjust if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. And he is not unjust. That's Paul's whole argument. It's John's argument when he says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, not merciful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So this is what the ministry of the Word is all about, to heal our deepest disease. And you find in the Old Testament, of course, that physical diseases and sin, that is healing and forgiveness, all go together. What does David say? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Forget not all of his benefits. 
He heals all of our diseases, forgives all of our sins. He pulls them together. In the Messianic age, those who have all their sins forgiven will have all their diseases released as well. So they go together. One in this age to last for eternity and one for sure in the next age when, we're, when our physical bodies are resurrected and they're completely healed. So we have healing and forgiveness. And Jesus addresses our real need and he does it with a word. A word that his life will back up. So he's writing checks against an account that he is going to fill up with his own righteousness and his own blood. So when he lays his life down on Calvary's cross, he is paying for all those checks that were written for this man, for all the Old Testament saints, and anyone who came before the cross. Checks were being written against the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he laid down his life, that pays for all the checks that were written against the account of God's grace and mercy. It's a marvelous story. Just uh, this week, uh, I was in Chicago in a meeting, and I was visiting uh, with, among other people, uh, some of you know Dr. D.A. Carson. In fact, he was here at Second. Uh, was it last year? Year before last? Christian Life Conference? Just a wonderful New Testament scholar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And, of course, uh, Don grew up in Canada, so he's fluent in French. Uh, he grew up in French-speaking Canada, so he's fluent in French as well as English. And he was talking about a book that just came out in France. And I... Uh, I could almost come up with a title, but I'm sure I've mispronounced it, so I won't even try. Uh, but it was about living. That's basically what it is. It's about living. It's about a non-Christian philosopher. And he covers the history of human thought about the meaning of life. And in one of his latter chapters, he takes up Christianity. And Don said, you know, it's very interesting. He said the treatment actually was relatively fair about Christianity. And there was one big critique from this non-Christian philosopher about Christianity. And here's what it was. It's too good to be true. Shoot, I agree with him, don't you? I mean, really, and I've, I've told folks before, some of you may be in this room who, who don't believe the gospel, I want, I want to say to you, I understand. And I sympathize with you. It, it is too good to be true. It sounds like the tooth fairy or Santa Claus or something. And you, just, you, you, you would naturally lump it in with these things that are just mythical, that couldn't possibly have any historical reality to it. It's too good to be true. And I've had people all over the world from every known religion that I can think of tell me just that. Your story is too good to be true. God doesn't work that way. You know, you sin and you get punished. He sins and he gets punished. And they got, especially my Muslim friends, they'll just go right down the list. It's too good to be true. Everybody says that. When they really understand, when they understand it, most of them don't understand it. But when they understand it, like this French philosopher apparently did, it's too good to be true. And grace is. And that's the reason that you know, we can see clearly in Paul's epistles that you have to have the Holy Spirit to convince you that this thing that seems too good to be true actually is true. And that's the reason that it's good news. Certainly it's so good uh, that no one could possibly have dreamt it up. <laughs> I mean, no human being could have dreamed of this gift and the way that it all works. Uh, but it does take the miracle of faith to believe this wild, this outrageous truth that someone else who's perfect, who is God of very God and man of very man, laid down his life and his death cancels our sins. That's the gospel. But one day, uh, C.S. Lewis walked into uh, one of the rooms at uh, Oxford University and some of the men there, the professors, were uh, debating religion and they were discussing Christianity and they and Lewis came in and said, what are you all talking about? And they said, well, we're trying to decide what is the most distinctive thing, Clive, about, uh, about uh, Christianity. And C.F. Lewis said, well, it's easy. It's grace. It is the, the distinctive thing about Christianity. It's just what we're talking about in these passages. And it is too good to be true in the minds of most people. I remember a, a story. This is a true story. Uh, up at, at Kirk of the Hills Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. Uh, I think it was Wilson Benton that told me that years ago the youth put on a car wash. And you know, usually when the youth put on a car wash in the parking lot of the church, you know, they'll charge you $5 and you actually give them 20 because it's for a missions trip and all this. Yeah, you're glad to pay them a lot of money even if they don't wash your car very well. Now, I want you to know our youth wash their car very, very well. But usually when you go into the church car wash, you're going to pay, it's going to cost you, right? Well, the youth at Kirk of the Hills 
just decided to do a free car wash. No strings attached. And they had common experiences with people who would go in. The classic example was a guy who came in. He was early on, and he came in to get his car wash, and it said free car wash outside the church yard. He drives in, gets his car wash, and says, how much is it? Didn't believe it. Sir, this is a free car wash. No, 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 no. Yes, 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 it's a free car wash. No, no, no. And he, he tried to throw the $10 back. They threw it back and said it's free. He threw it. Finally, he got out, took the $10, wad up, threw it, got in his car, and dashed off. He could not stand the idea of a free car wash. And neither can you. A lot of you really would wrestle with a free car wash in the church parking lot. And the reason is, it's really simple. You wrestle with grace. A lot of you have a hard time when somebody wants to do something for you. You know why? It's not just because you're a professional and you like to be sure you're serving other people instead of being served and you don't want to be dysfunctional. No, no, no. It's because you have a hard time with grace. You really do. And when you find those symptoms coming out in you, why don't you back off and really ask the Lord if you understand and have accepted the reality that your life and breath and your eternal life and breath is based on what Jesus Christ did for you and not what you're doing for Him. And be sure you get that one nailed down really strong. Let me tell you how you can tell when someone really sins against you. You're really wrestling with forgiving them. Sometimes it's your spouse. The root issue, can you believe you've been forgiven? Everything, everything. Sins past, sins present, sins future. Bad ones, little ones, all kinds of sins. Consistently, without fail, without failure, Christ has forgiven all your sins. And that's the only way you can forgive someone who's done the unforgivable against you. It's all a matter of do you believe in grace, this story that's too good to be true or not. When we come to these conflict stories, we'll find out it was too good to be believed by the scribes and the Pharisees, the most religious people. It was too good for the church people to believe it. That's the story of Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6. Well, let's look in verses 6 through 12 and you see the response here. Uh, It's not... Very happy. Some of the teachers, verse 6 of the law, were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, this is true. No one but God can forgive sins. And my paradigm is, Jesus Christ couldn't possibly be God. Therefore, he must be blaspheming. And I'm not going to change that paradigm because my mother taught it to me. My grandfather had believed it. Scribes and Pharisees believe it. And my whole religion is based on it. So that's just the way it is. So it must be blasphemy. So if you have a non-gracious paradigm that doesn't allow for miracles, then he's blaspheming. And he is doing one or the other. He is either speaking as God in the name of God or he is blaspheming. C.S. Lewis was right. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. But don't give me this mamby-pamby stuff that he's a good teacher. No, he's a liar. If he's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And here you have it. They caught him in it. And they didn't believe that incarnations could take place and that Jesus Christ could be God incarnate. So they went ahead and drew their conclusions based on their old Ptolemaic view of the universe. So here you have it. He's a blasphemer. Now, notice in verse 8 that Jesus now is going to reveal his authority to forgive. And this is the whole point of verses 6 through 12. He's now revealing he has the authority to heal you at the deepest level. And in verse 8, you'll notice that in his spirit, he knew that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Uh, Sometimes we wonder, does God know my thoughts? Yes, sir. You may as well just get on the top of the roof and shout it out. He knows your thoughts. Does he know my lusts? Yes, sir. Does he know my greed and ambitions and avarice? Yes, sir. You may as well just stand on top of the roof and shout it out that you're entertaining those thoughts in your mind. Not that you're tempted. He was tempted. But you're rolling it over in your mind. You know, she didn't only look good to you, but now you start imagining about having an affair with her. Uh, Yes, sir. Those thoughts, 
that entertaining of that temptation, inviting that temptation into your heart, playing it all out. Yes, sir, he knows your thoughts. Here it is. Now, I've said before, Satan does not know your thoughts. I don't believe he does. Nowhere in the scriptures do you ever find Satan says, I know your thoughts. Satan knows your words, your actions. He can see, but he does not know your thoughts. He's not omniscient. That belongs to God alone. Magicians and sorcerers may play at it, but only God knows your thoughts, and he knows them. And here it is. Jesus' second sign of his deity is not just his announcement of your sins being forgiven, but now he knows what you think. That's kind of scary, isn't it? It's scary unless you believe in grace. You can take all those ugly thoughts and all those ugly imaginations, all those ugly lusts and greeds and prides, and you can hand them right over to him and say, Lord, I'm trusting your forgiveness alone. I have no other claim. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? This is a great question. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to tell this man to rise, get up, and walk? Well, of course, the presumption would be it's easier uh, to say your sins are forgiven. That's what they think. Because they don't realize that when God forgives all of our sins completely, that it requires a payment on the cross of Calvary of his own son. There's great irony in this question Jesus is asking. It's much easier for Jesus to say, rise, take up your mat and go home, than it is your sins are forgiven. Because as soon as he says, your sins are forgiven, he's going to die. It costs him everything to say that. But of course, they believe it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. So Jesus said, okay, I'll take the more difficult and prove to you the less difficult. So in order that you might know the less difficult is actually true and becomes the more difficult, I'm going to heal this man. And here you do have, once again, one of the purposes of healing. All healing comes out of the compassionate heart of Jesus Christ to make this world right. And his kingdom is right. And in his physical incarnation, his first presence here with us in the kingdom, he showed us an outbreak of the signs of the kingdom. This is what it's going to be like in Toto, without exception, when he comes back the second time. But we saw that, that he is going to make it right. He declares the kingdom. And here he is telling us, he, he says, in order that you might know the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, rise, take up your mat, and go home. So he is showing us that he has the power to cleanse us of all our indebtedness to God. You know, what would it be like, some of you who have a heavy debt load, just for someone to walk up to you today and say, listen, I don't know what all your debt is. I don't need to know, but whatever it is, I'm paying for it today. What? <laughs> you ever heard of a mortgage? <laughs> you ever heard of the equity loans, <laughs> credit cards, educational loans, whatever you've got? It's just all gone. Talk about walking out of here just kind of, you're floating out of the fellowship hall this morning. Well, this is even grander. When Jesus is saying it's all canceled because I'm paying for it. And Jesus reveals here his authority to forgive. He is showing these Pharisees and these scribes and his disciples that this is no cheap grace. He is going to pay for it. It's actually going to be done. Now, it's interesting here. He calls himself the son of man. And we know those of you who have studied, done gospel studies before know that this is the most common description that Jesus uses of himself even more than Son of God. Others may call him Son of God, but he typically calls himself Son of Man. But typically in Mark's Gospel, he doesn't do that until after Peter's high confession in chapter 8. And then he does it all about 12 times after chapter 8. Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. This and also in verse 28 are the only two instances before Peter's high confession when we get it. It's just an early outbreak of Jesus Christ, this, this eschatological figure, this figure you know, as Daniel would share, you know, the Son of Man appears at the end of the age. And here's this end of the age man, this eschatological man who appears in time. And that's what he's saying he is. He's the Son of Man who came with the power to forgive sins. Gentlemen, have we embraced this? Have we really embraced Jesus Christ and his power to forgive all of our sins? We'll find that most of our difficulties in relationships, most of our difficulties with all of our worries, our anxieties are handled. 
when we believe that Jesus' forgiveness flows from his grace. Well, let's look at verses 13 through 3-6. We'll lump this all together and just call it Jesus' grace challenges the status quo. And it does. If we resist grace, so did these people. And I want you to notice there are three key Q&As, and you have those listed in your notes there, which Mark is showing us are the, are the three major challenges that are being given to grace in this segment. Now let's look at them. We'll just read them through quickly here, and then we'll make some comments. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. There he goes again, you see, teaching. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, we see here in in verses 13 through 17, the fellowship of Jesus Christ. There is a social, there's a community of grace that goes with the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it challenges our ideas of social relations. First of all, notice Jesus calls sinners to follow him. One time, uh, I believe it was Morton Kelsey who asked a, a Buddhist monk about Christianity. And the Buddhist monk said, you know, there's something really special about Christianity. But the Christians have not yet found out what it is. <laughs> There's truth to that, isn't there? And here you have it displayed before us. Jesus goes up to the worst of sinners. He could not have selected a worse scoundrel than Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Let me tell you why. He's a tax collector. Why is it so bad? He's collecting taxes not for the Jews, but for the Romans. And he's in his tax booth. He has a commission to collect a certain level of taxes. And anything he collects over that is his profit. Now, what kind of behavior does that lead to? With the power of the Roman state behind him to collect and extort taxes for his own living. This guy is scumbag. Anybody who's a tax collector in Jewish culture at this time could never serve as a judge in court could never appear as a witness in court because they're, incre- they're not credible witnesses. And they have been excommunicated from the synagogue. They can't even show up in synagogue. These people are the bottom of the barrel. And that's exactly where Jesus goes. There he goes again, ruining the curve, ruining the sort of social society we're trying to build up here. He goes straight to this man, obviously making a point. And he says to him, follow me. And any righteous person would have nothing to do with him. And Jesus makes him part of the band. I'm sure those disciples are going, I look on you, we're bad, but good grief, Jesus. What are you doing to our crowd here? Tax collector? That's embarrassing. Former tax collector. Because Jesus said, follow me. And the man leaves his tax collecting booth and goes. Notice, secondly, Jesus wants to meet your friends because you happen to be the tax collector. And I happen to be the tax collector. And he wants to know our friends. Our fellow tax collectors, our fellow scumbags. And let's just get them all together and have a big scumbag lunch and invite Jesus over. That's the way it works. One scumbag tells another scumbag how to find forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is up to. And the church is so often up to looking at someone and saying, you know what? Let's get that guy out of our church because he would make a fine Presbyterian. Which means, of course, the Baptists have already converted him. Uh, he's, he's got a good job in town, and, uh, you know, he won't embarrass us. So there's, there's a good one. And that's the way it usually works in church circles. He'll make a good whatever. And I doubt anybody was saying to, about Levi, son of Alphaeus, ah, oh, he'd make a good follower of Jesus. No, sir. But those are the people that Jesus is going after. You notice the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I'm glad you asked. Because the mission is to heal people. And people who are healthy 
and don't want to be healed, they don't need a doctor. I mean, how would it be, Doug, if all of your clients were healthy people who didn't need surgery? That'd be, boy, that'd be a great business, wouldn't it? <laughs> Nobody who needed surgery for Doug Hickson be out of business. So would Jesus. Jesus is after sinners. Do you love sinners? You know, there's some people I know in my life, and I would just describe them this way. They love sinners. That's the reason they're my friends, by the way. They love sinners. Do you? Or do you love the righteous and healthy people? Doctors love sick people. And Christ followers learn to love the ones Jesus loves who are sinners. There's the big question. So the first pushback is social. Who's going to be in this group? Think about that. The second pushback has to do with the celebration of Jesus' grace. How are we supposed to behave if we've been forgiven all of our sins? Well, let's look at the text, verses 18 through 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. So let's look at the celebration of Jesus' grace. First thing is grace breaks the fast. Grace is breakfast. Why do I say this? They ask him, Jesus, these other disciples of John and the Pharisees' disciples, they fast. That is, Pharisees fasted every Monday, every Thursday, every week. So, Jesus, if you're serious about God, why aren't your people fasting? And he describes it like a wedding, like a romantic relationship. We are the bride and he's the bridegroom and the bridegroom is in our midst. So he says, how can they fast at a wedding party? That makes no sense at all. And grace is a foretaste of the wedding banquet that is to come. We're enjoying a banquet. So in the Old Testament, the people were to fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, you can fast as a special discipline as many times as you want to. But as a regular discipline, one time a year is what they fasted. Some of, some of you may choose for example, on Good Friday, you know, once a year, let's have a fast. That's what's what I do. Once a year, I'll say to those on the staff or the officers, hey, y'all want to join in a fast? Let's just seek the Lord and forsake our food one day a year. Now, some of you will fast many more times than that, and, and that's good. But just corporately, are we going to have a corporate celebration discipline that looks like we're sad or looks like we're glad? Well, if you've, been having all, if you've had all your sins forgiven, you're glad you can't help yourself. You're going to be feasting, not fasting, except for once a year or so in anticipation of even the greater banquet that is coming, realizing we don't have it all here. So grace breaks the fast in that sense. And it's fine to fast, but it's not so fine to expect everybody else to fast as though we're supposed to be sad around here. We're not. That's the reason that you will find the power of optimism generally following evangelism in the church. You know, all business leaders will tell you, if you want to be successful in business, you've got to be optimistic. If you want to be successful in politics, you've got to be optimistic. And if you're going to be successful in ministry, you've got to be optimistic. And is this something that we just get going up inside ourselves? Well, some people do that. Some people could try that. But what you'll find is optimism generally follows the wave of evangelism and people coming to know Jesus Christ. They can't help themselves. To be pessimistic as a Christian is atheistic. It's not to believe His promises. So even if you have a melancholy personality, you can't help yourself but break out with a little grin every once in a while because of the gospel, because of the celebration of grace. And then we see in verses 21 22 that grace even demands new traditions. Jesus says, you know what? This grace is not going to get poured into the synagogues as we know them today. They're just too much built on self-righteousness for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to work in these traditions. These traditions can't house this news that's good, too good to believe. You get to create some new traditions, which is exactly what the church did. So grace demands new wineskins. If you have new wine and you put it in old wineskins that, that have already reached their limit of elasticity, 
they just crack and break and the wine pours out because the wine's expanding. So you put new wine, it's going to expand as it continues to ferment a little bit in new wine skins that are flexible. And that's what Jesus is saying. You don't pour the new wine of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your old traditions or your old lifestyle. If you become a Christian, you've got to change your way of dealing with people. You have to change the way you deal with your wife. You have to change the way you do church. You have to change the way you work in the community. You have to change the way you think of yourself. Do you condemn yourself, motivate yourself through guilt and fear, or do you motivate yourself by reminding yourself how much Jesus loves you? Those are new wineskins, a new way of thinking. And I know in my, in my own case, it took me about seven years to develop new wineskins, to hold the wine that had been poured in my life through the grace of Jesus Christ. It, it's a paradigm shift. It takes a while to learn these new traditions and ways of thinking. Well, let's move on. Verses 23 through 36, we're going to see the radicalism of Jesus' grace. And just look at this. Jesus is now going to, to blow up into smithereens the way of life of the first century Jew. One Sabbath, verse 23, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which was lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. These people are serious about opposing grace. They're just as serious as my flesh is. My flesh is very serious about opposing grace. My flesh is determined to set up a system that's based on merit. And Mark Twain said it's a good thing that heaven comes by grace and not by merit because if it didn't, we would never get in, and only our dogs would be allowed. It's a good thing that it's by grace. But everything in my flesh, everything in my natural fallen being opposes this kind of unmerited kindness from God. I don't want to be His charity case in my flesh. And so then in my pride, I try to prove that I don't need it. That's the way it works. And look at these people. Look at these people. They're us. Most of us, religious people. First of all, grace challenges our view of the law. They say, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It wasn't unlawful. They screwed up the law. Deeds of mercy and necessity and kindness were always allowed on the Sabbath. And these people just completely forgot it. Because they had allowed their own self-righteousness their own performance-based mentality to begin to develop their religion. I see it in the church of Jesus Christ day after day after day. I'm not talking just out here at Second Presbyterian. I'm talking about in this community. I'm talking about in this nation. I'm talking about around the world. That we establish these firm ideas of how religion ought to work and who ought to be rewarded and who ought not to be rewarded. We have our own pharisaical way of shunning people who don't cooperate with us, who don't keep the religious rules, we use all the methods that Jesus found in the first century right here in the Protestant and Catholic churches, which represent most of us, maybe a few Orthodox here. It's in all of us. And you find that we even pervert the law. And in our perverted view of the law, we say that what Jesus is doing is unlawful. We say that grace is unlawful. We say that if you, treat, if you tell people that all their sins are forgiven, all they're going to do is go out there and sin some more. Why people say that? In the Christian church, 
And Paul addresses that question in Romans 6 because he anticipates it. If you understand grace properly, you're going to ask that question. And, of course, his answer is not only have your sins been forgiven, but your nature has been changed so that that's a stupid question. Because now your nature is to desire the things of God. So at the same time your sins are forgiven, your nature is changed and you want the things of God. That's called conversion or regeneration. So the first thing we do is we distort grace by, and, and distort our understanding of the law. Secondly, grace challenges our view of the Lord. He says to them, so the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Have you not understood that our real rest comes from trusting in the work of the Lord? And are you not to understand that the greatest work of the Lord is the incarnation of his own son, Jesus Christ, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, who then grew up and died on a cross and was raised from the tomb and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Is that not the greatest work of God? And that's where we find our rest. The whole purpose of the Sabbath is to exalt the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in our Pharisaisms and our moralisms, we forget who's the Lord. In your family, when you're trying to control your children through just mere threats and guilt, well, you know, Johnny next door, he'd never do that. And that kind of crud. All you're doing is replacing Jesus Christ as Lord in your home, as the chief motivator in your home, with the motivations of the Pharisees, which are inspired by the devil himself. And we do that all the time. Grace challenges that. Who is the Lord of the home? Who's the Lord of your house? Are you doing things because you're in love or because you're afraid of being guilty? There's a huge difference. Between life and death, between Jesus and a Pharisee there. And so many Christian families uh, resort to an, a Pharisaical view of, of the law and the Lord. Thirdly, grace challenges our view of who's sick. Who's really sick in this text? Is it the man with the shriveled hand? No, it's the Pharisees. It's the, it's the people who go to church. They're the sick ones because they have their religious regulations and their personal disciplines so in order that they now become their righteousness. And anyone who violates their disciplines now is unrighteous and unworthy of God's help. And it's more important to these people, can you get this, to keep their rabbinical views, of not the Old Testament view of the Sabbath, but their rabbinical views of the Old Testament Sabbath is more important for them to abide by those than to have a man who has an arm that doesn't work to have it healed. I ask you, who's sick? It's more important for us to have our building be clean and nice and our name not be besmirched than to reach the poor in this city and to welcome them in. It's more important for us to have a club like church where we have people in it who are kind of like us, that we like, than to be reaching the disenfranchised. Grace challenges all that. When your life has been turned inside out by grace, you begin turning inside out the cultural norms and conventions of our own day. Lastly, verses 7 through 12. We'll see that Jesus' grace satisfies a deep human hunger. And look at it here briefly in these verses. Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the lake, and because, and that was often the case, when the, when the huge wave of opposition would come, sometimes he'd go all the way across the lake. There was a different governor on the other side of the lake, and it, it provided some relief. But he would often just go out into the lake. I'm sure he could think there and get away from the crowd. But he goes to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him. Look at this, from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea which is, you know, kind of half Jewish, and the regions across the Jordan, the Decapolis, the Gentiles, and around Tyre and Sidon. Once again, Gentiles, outsiders. This is it's going international. The word went everywhere. This man makes a difference in life. And because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them, once again here, strict orders not to tell who he was. You get that eight or nine times in Mark, the Messianic secret. But first of all, it's universal. You see people in Galilee, people down in Jerusalem, people down in the land of the Edomites, uh, Idumea, 
You see Tyre and Sidon, people from the Decapolis, from all over the region coming to Jesus. Which is to say to us, Jesus Christ is the answer, not just for the Christianized West or post-Christian West, but it's for those who live in the Middle East. Jesus Christ is for all the Muslims. All of them. They're to know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is for all of the Hindus in India. All of them. He made them. And he's the only one who can forgive them and restore a shameless life to them. He's for all the Buddhists. He is to be the Lord of all the Chinese, all the animists, all people everywhere. And clearly Mark is showing that and showing those who are in Rome to whom he's writing that all the nations you have represented in Rome, let me tell you you something about them, every one of them is a qualified candidate to meet Jesus Christ. And when they understand how gracious he is, they're going to flock to him. They're going to love him. And they do, ladies and uh, gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Don't take it personally. And then look how holistic it is in verses 10 through 12. That he healed them, their diseases, their demons, everything. This is no partial cure. This is an entire complete cure for anybody around the world of any age. And that's what Mark is showing us in this glorious gospel of grace. So, the most distinctive thing about Christianity is just what we've seen here. It's the unmitigated, unadulterated grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one critique, and I accept this, of Christianity, it's just too good to be true. Let's pray. Father, uh, we know that it's too good for us to believe because it is too good. But by your power, we may believe. And we apply to you again today in prayer this morning. Help us in our unbelief. We do believe. But we also don't believe in some ways. And we pray that you would mature our faith today. That we may embrace all of what you offer in the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. And that rather than challenging it, either socially or legally or religiously, In our souls, Lord, help us to embrace it and then accept the challenges to go out and change our entire world based on grace, because we know that what this world needs more than anything else is the grace of the living God. So, God, help us to be the messengers and the demonstrators of this beautiful, lovely and true grace through Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. God bless you.